Welcome to the Real Friends Podcast, everybody. My name is Rajiv Tawari, and joining me from not too far in Durham is Luke Perrin. Luke, what's up, man? Rajiv, how's it going, man? It's going well. Uh, there are a lot of things happening in the triangle right now, and as my as the Real Friends Podcast unofficial 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 maybe we can make it i'm doing air quotes right now yeah maybe we can bad radio but air quotes happen (laughs) okay uh the unofficial politics correspondent uh let's talk about the dnc so you and i have both been watching it what are your thoughts so far on the dnc i think it's i think the democrats are doing the best that they can right now with the hand that they've been dealt with the pandemic Uh, a lot of people that i've been seeing on social media in terms of the format have been really really singing the praises of this shift uh, to a virtual format. I I joked about it with my roommate the first night. I felt like I was watching a telethon, but I've grown to it. And I think it's a, I think of the ways that they could have done this convention, I think that this is obviously the safest way possible. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I I think they've done a really good job at, um, at creating a, an interactive uh, environment. I th- think it could have very easily just been a whole bunch of iMovie clips all pressed together with a that intro you know, was speech. a little rough. <laughs> yeah, I mean there there have been some hiccups. I mean the yeah. um, the Buffalo Springfield uh, cover the other night was a little, little rough for me, but you know hiccups here and there. But o- overall, I think they've been doing they've been doing a good job with what they've been dealt. I, I wonder, and you don't really get this from the TV. I mean, I've I've gotten a lot of different feels to speeches because one thing that not a lot of people really understand about rhetoric is just the ways in which the speaker is able to feed off of their audience, off of whoever they're speaking to. And I know a lot of preachers, especially in charismatic traditions and um, churches that I've been affiliated previously, a lot of those Baptist preachers are ones who will feed off of what their congregants are, are, are feed off of what their congregants are giving them. And you don't really have that. It was so strange to me to hear Kamala Harris's acceptance speech last night with crickets until they had the overlaid clapping after it was all over, which that's that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. And that's that feels a very, very forced to me having the people clap after every speaker. But at the end of the day, I think they've done it. I think they've done a good job uh, so far of of handling the situation the best way that they can. How do you think the Democrats have handled this issue of diversity so the roll call as you notice i thought that was brilliant i, I thought I, the I way they handled that, that roll call. The, i mean that should be the way it should be done from now on in my opinion 100 uh, percent. what did you think about the roll call in terms of kind of just this push for diversity i think the roll call is one of the better encompassments of american diversity that we've seen and it was truly i, I thought it was beautiful to witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who in each individual state or whether it was someone in the national party got to make those decisions about who it was that would be uh, saying things and where they would be saying certain things. But it was so just mesmerizing to watch. I know Twitter had a field day with the calamari and the oh, yeah. was Joe's. That, was it Maine who did that? Or uh, it was, or it was Maine. one of the, it was one of the Northeastern. Yeah. Um, one of the north northeastern states, uh, New Hampshire. That's what it was. It was New Hampshire, Jed Bartlett territory. Uh, and then, of course, Joe Biden 
having Delaware at the Amtrak station that he used to mm-hmm. go to every day to ride the train into Washington, D.C. North Carolina, obviously, was um, near and dear to my heart. It was um, cool to see, definitely. I just, it was, like I said, it was one of the better encompassments of diversity that yeah. we've seen in the convention. And comparing that to previous conventions, you lose a little bit of the luster in the way that it's designed because there's something that is so electrifying about that nomination period in the in the convention arena where you have all of the delegates all huddled together yeah. and the representative who's speaking it. I was I was rewatching the 2016 convention the other night and I was just thinking about I mean one I was freaking out because COVID has gotten to my head and I'm over here thinking that, oh, these people are too close to each other. But it was, it's, it's cool to, in the moments to see in those situations, particularly I was thinking of, of New York when I was watching it. That's what caught my eye because you have this scene with Chuck Schumer standing beside Kirsten Gillibrand, standing beside Governor Cuomo, who was yeah. the, who was the person who was announcing that New York's votes are going to Hillary Clinton and the crowd is just going berserk. And so it was, I, I think I personally prefer that just out of tradition's sake. Mm-hmm. I'll call myself a, a traditionalist on the roll call vote. But so far, that's definitely been a highlight of the convention. Um, is that enough to fix what you say are quote-unquote diversity problems? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a severely underrepresentation of Latinx people at the convention um, besides mm-hmm. um, individuals that they are bringing on. Um such as um, Governor uh, Grisham from um, I can't I think that's New Mexico, yeah. yeah, yeah, from New Mexico. Um, but really, there's just not been a lot of Latinx um, yeah. representation. I was joking about it last night. They've had more Latinx representation from families that Trump has deported in the convention. Than they have actual True. speakers, and I think that's a that's a problem with the Democratic Party right now. And I think that's that's indicative of that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there was, you, you know, this Andrew Yang, there was a lot of controversy about not giving him a speaking slot Let and Yang then speak coming back. He's speaking tonight. It's going to be super exciting to see. I would have but, liked to see, uh, Pramila Jayapal, uh, in, absolutely. In Washington. She was somebody that I, I was very confused as to why they did not. I mean, she's not necessarily a rising star. I mean, she's already pretty established within the democratic party. And I, and I think you definitely had Bernie won the nomination. I think you would have seen people who are more progressive leaning because that was going to be the general vibe of the convention as a whole. Definitely. Joe Biden is this Joe Biden is the unity candidate that, and I know that term gets thrown around by a lot of people and can be weighted in a lot of different ways. But I mean, that's essentially what it is, what Joe Biden is. And I think you get that by the presence of Colin Powell and other Republicans, John Kasich. And a lot of, a lot of people on the left, as you know, are not happy about that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I tend to go against, uh, that, that mantra. I think that, I mean, unless the other person who is coming to your convention is a war criminal and you can, you can debate that about Colin Powell all you want, but yeah. I, I welcome, I, I welcome the presence of Republicans at the democratic convention, because at the end of the day, the most existential threat this country's faced in at least my lifetime, is the presidency of Donald Trump and the white supremacy that has preceded it, that led to it, and mm-hmm. is coming as a result of it. You bring up an interesting point about Republicans at the convention. So I feel like there's this this push right now. I mean, every night so far of the convention, we've seen at least three-minute-long videos of Republicans in denial, if you want to call it that, or uh, Republicans who have buyer's remorse for their vote in 2016. 
and they seem pretty heartfelt. And we also have like the Lincoln Project, and which we can talk about that as well. But do you do you think that this push to get uh, Republicans on board? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's this Republican denial kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think right now the branding that they're doing with Republican denial, if you paid attention to the people in it, they're mostly white middle upper class individuals. Literally all of them in, at the DNCs used in these videos have been white so far. And so I think that is, if that is reflective of the electorate, then I think that's obviously going to help Joe Biden because that's, that's the chunk of the voter base that he needs to take from Donald Trump in order to win. He needs, he needs middle to upper class white individuals, most of whom without college educated degrees, to be the ones who are going to push him forward. Do I think that just in general that he's going to be able to attract uh, dissatisfied Republicans? I'm not necessarily convinced. Trump still remains, last time I checked on Gallup, with 95% approval within the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that he's going to pull people who are self-identified Republicans. He might pull the people who are moderate. Maybe they are registered Republicans, but people who feel as if they are strongly Republican, they're not going to abandon ship on the president. I think Joe Biden is also going to be able to, in polling has shown, black voters trust Joe Biden. I don't all, I don't like to throw that around all the time because I think something in politics that we do a lot is that we like to say that like black voters are a monolith of people. Yeah. Latinx voters are a monolith. But like with white voters, we divide them into subgroups, right? Like white voters are like, there's like upper class whites, like college educated whites, whites without a college degree. And then there's black voters. Joe Biden, at least according to what the polls are showing, is doing well with black voters, doing better with black voters than Hillary Clinton was able to do. And if he can keep that up, that's hard to come back from mm-hmm. because Democrats win when black voters vote for Democrats. And we saw they're that the backbone. They're the, they're the backbone of the Democratic Party. So the white evangelical vote is a, a huge part of why Donald Trump won in 2016. And you can say what you want about Fox. I think they have a decent polling center. 28% of white evangelicals say that they will not vote for Donald Trump. Do you think that's significant? I think I think it's significant in that he doesn't have a lot of wiggle room to work with. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about somebody who lost the popular vote by 3 million people. And if it's a close election, you're going to lean that electoral vote towards the incumbent. But if that 28% holds, which I don't think it will, I think a lot of white evangelicals will come back around to him for whatever the reason be. I mean, we're, we're still two months out from this election and a lot can happen in two months. God hoping it doesn't happen. All it would take would be a Supreme Court justice retiring or passing away in the next two months Mm -hmm. for the election to become a referenda on abortion completely. And if that's the case, then all of a sudden, I think a white evangelical vote is going to cling back to the president. So I do, I mean, polls, like you said, polls have shown that he is losing that vote and that's, that's hard for him to come back from. And I think you see Joe Biden understands that. And I've paid attention to this in the convention and just in general, that there has been more faith-based messaging from Joe Biden than any candidate that I can remember. Mm-hmm. And truly, and not in the in the faith sense is the way that the, we'll say the religious right is able to mobilize faith efforts. Because I think when we talk about the notion of a religious left versus a religious right, we're talking about two totally different things. The religious right is a political giant. Mm-hmm. And the religious left will never be that because the Democratic Party is too big of a tent and religious groups that don't fall into that evangelical mold are not cohesive and monolithic enough to the point where they'll be able to mobilize something as big to counter that religious right. So but you the think religious, the religious left, left doesn't try to swing votes necessarily? No, not at all. But they, they do try to swing votes. But it's 
I think when we talk about what the religious left is, we'd like to compare it to what we see is the religious right. Okay. And I think that's something that we shouldn't do because the religious left is Dr. Barber marching with the moral Mondays. Mm-hmm. The religious left are individuals like Melissa Rogers, who was Barack Obama's faith and neighborhood council partner, neighborhood partnerships council chair. I don't know the title. Forgive me, Melissa. <laughs> people like people like them, individuals who are ordained ministers who are speaking out, the uh, minister from St. John's Church closed the convention on the second night with a benediction. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful coming from her being the individual that Trump used her church as a photo op to hold up a Bible after attacking people who were protesting, which is holy action. Yeah. According to Dr. King and so many other different people. And so it's a, it's a different comparison when we talk about the religious left and the religious right, because with the religious right, we've just grouped it into the Falwell dynasty and the Franklin Graham and Mm -hmm. the abortion issue. And it's just this massive thing that the religious left is never going to be able to counter in terms of resources. But that doesn't mean that Democrats can't and shouldn't, because I'm all about this, use religious messaging in what they do. By the time you're listening to this podcast, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, who took Joe Biden's Senate seat, coincidentally enough, will have given his speech at the last night of the convention. And that speech is riddled with faith-based messaging. Joe Biden, he has an MDiv from Yale. Joe Biden has been relying on this faith-based messaging. This is a guy who has lived an entire life in grief. Mm-hmm. And I said it six months ago when I was talking to someone about why Joe Biden is able to resonate so much with people. And it's because I can associate that with a pastoral care, just environment. Joe Biden is so good at understanding the grief in people and sitting with them in the depths of that. And it's profoundly religious mm-hmm. to the point where I haven't seen a politician maybe be able to do that as well as Joe Biden. Yeah. And I don't think it hurts that there was a lot more religious messaging during the primary Matthew 25 was thrown around on stump speeches from Senator Warren and Mayor Buttigieg and a whole bunch of different people. Religious messaging is out there and it's important. And I think that it's designed in a lot of ways. I think there is, of course, some like genuineness in it. I don't want to say like this religious messaging is all a front to chip away that evangelical vote because I do think that there is some genuineness in it. I mean, Senator Warren is a Methodist Sunday school teacher. But at the same time, it's effective. And if it's able to convince a moderate Protestant or a moderate evangelical or whomever that this president is profoundly immoral by any standard that you can cast in a religious manner, then that's going to chip away at the support. And just one other thing, I think, too, when we talk about like the idea of the religious left, I think that's also silencing of Black voices. Uh, We talk about we say, oh, a lot of people will say, oh, like religion, the religious left doesn't exist, et cetera. That's, I mean, that's a rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. But at the end of the day, I mean, the most prominent civil rights leader in the history of the world was a Baptist minister. So like that, those, those were religious protests. Malcolm X was a practicing Muslim. It's religious. It's profoundly yeah, religious. Definitely. So we're recording this on the 20th. So tonight, Joe Biden officially accepts the the nomination for the presidency. You and I are both, we're big Spider-Man fans. 
Well, actually, let me ask you this. Who is your, uh, what was the first superhero kind of thing that you got into as a kid? Batman Beyond. Batman Beyond. Was what? In Batman Beyond. Terry McGinnis. Terry McGinnis. Oh, man. I, oh, if they ever made a live-action Batman Beyond movie, I would be over the moon. Just bring in Michael Keaton for it. I tweeted about Spider-Man, and uh, we got into this conversation around Peter Parker and who is the best Peter Parker as portrayed on screen. So we have Tobey Maguire, we have Andrew Garfield, we have Tom Holland, and then we have, if you want to count him, the CGI Miles Morales. Let's start with, with Tobey Maguire. So I personally think that Tobey Maguire is the best interpretation of Peter Parker. What are your thoughts? Depends if we're talking about Peter Parker or Spider-Man, because I could make that case either way. That's very true. I so think, go ahead. No, I was going to, it, it just depends on now, if we're going to make the case that he's the best Peter Parker, I'm right there with you. I think Tobey Maguire is able to portray Peter Parker the best mm -hmm. of any of the, of any of the Spider-Man, except for maybe the animated spectacular Spider-Man from the nineties. Okay. But, but no, pound for pound in terms of like Peter Parker, it's Tobey Maguire. He's able to encompass this, this nerdiness that the others really aren't able to grasp as well. What did you think about his Spider-Man portrayal? So I think he, he kind of deviates from the comics a little bit, having the web infused with his DNA and it, it's just a different Spider-Man, but felt like he was more business. He wasn't as quirky and sarcastic as some of the other Spider-Mans. Yeah, they turned Spider-Man into a cop, you know, which is interesting to look at now that we have a, a massive just movement against police in this country that really Spider-Man and the Tobey Maguire movies for all intents and purposes is a masked New York police officer. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy, I mean, in the comics, I mean, you've got the red, white, and blue suit, obviously the incumbent, the embodiments of America. Mm -hmm. I get that. That's what Stanley was going for. It was, it was back in the mid 1900s. That's the vibe. I'm cool with it. But as a Spider-Man. Okay. I'm, I mean, I, I, I think he's the, I think he's the worst Spider-Man in, and out of all of the Spider-Man, I do think Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man is the worst of the Spider-Man. He's not witty in such a way that the other Spider-Man are, because that's an element of Spider-Man that is missing. And I think they try to course correct that overly with Andrew Garfield. And we'll get into that in just a second. I'm sure. I hated Garfield. But, oh, I don't. I, like I said, we'll get into that. But Tobey Maguire does a really good job of growing and credit to the writers, I don't want to say this is all Tobey Maguire, but this is just the we'll, we'll call it the Tobey Maguire trilogy in general. You get the best character growth of that character than you do in any of the Spider-Man spinoffs, movies, trilogies, appearances in expanded universes, whatever it may be, because there is a motive that Tobey Maguire Spider-Man has. And it's something that you're able to see so much better than the others. The Tobey Maguire Spider-Man is motivated by Uncle Ben's death. It is pretty dark at times. And, and of course, Spider-Man 3, and that's a whole... I'll, I'll get into that in just a second because that's 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 very Dark Knight reactionary of me, which I don't know if I'm ready to get into just yet. But you're able to see the growth of Spider-Man through those three movies in such a way that you're not able to see the growth of Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield in the later movies. Yeah, so Andrew Garfield, I thought, was a terrible Peter Parker. But I thought he was a great... Spider-Man. I mean, if you if you read the comics and you see all the quirkiness and the sarcasm and the jokes and just the the very teenage mentality that Spider-Man has, I think Andrew Garfield's portrayal of Spider-Man 
was was really good. Cause Peter Parker was weird. Like I thought he was just a weird kid. What what do you think? I mean, in the Andrew Garfield movies, Peter Parker builds the web shooters. It's not Spider Man who builds it. Peter Parker builds them. He's a smart enough kid to be able to build himself web shooters. And I think we are so frustrated in Andrew Garfield because he's hot and because he skateboards well. <laughs> and we like to say those are the two things that Spider-Man can't do. And with Tom Holland in the later movies, you feel a little icky about calling him hot because he doesn't look like he, like he's in high school. I know Andrew Garfield's in high school, but he like Tom Holland, like looks like a high schooler. Yeah. Andrew Garfield looks like a twilight character. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to make that connection and being like, okay, well, that's why I don't like him because he's he's too punk. But like I refuse to I refuse to believe that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are a snap of a finger difference from each other, where Spider-Man is sarcastic and witty and Peter Parker is not. It's not like an intentional thing. I think putting on the mask gives him the confidence to be that outwardly, more so than he would be as he's Peter Parker, because he doesn't have to face the consequences of his actions. But I think they also, with the Andrew Garfield movies, I think they really, they really tried to course correct. And I think they thought that people wanted that wittiness out of the character that they didn't really get out of the Tobey Maguire movies. And I think that's why those movies failed. Um, I think they're just too discombobulated in general. I think they suffer, and I'm going to get into this now, I mentioned from the Dark Knight fatigue. I think that those movies suffer from Avengers fatigue particularly The Amazing Spider-Man 2, because that movie came out after The Avengers had come out. So whereas we see Spider-Man 3 does come out before The Dark Knight, right? Comes out in 2007. The Dark Knight comes out in 2008, and it just it changes the game for movies, but superhero movies particularly. This is a neo-noir movie that is dark. Batman Begins had done that already, though, in 2005. And so you're starting to see this shift to dark and grittiness in superhero movies. Man of Steel did it, and I love Man of Steel. That's one of my favorite superhero movies. A lot of superhero movies move towards that. Spider-Man 3 did that by including the stuff with the the symbiote and adding Venom to it, which I thought's the worst part of the movie. They looked back and they said, that movie would have been really, really good if it would have just focused on that relationship between Harry and Peter. And they try to introduce these dark elements like Venom, like the symbiote, and that moves on into fatigue and all of a sudden we're like okay we've gotten a sequel to the dark knight oh man this dark stuff is just getting really old and then the mcu shows up right in the middle of this and the avengers drops in 2012 and people freak out about it and suddenly superhero movies are back to a colorful vibrant palette they're fun they're funny superhero movies aren't gritty anymore. And that's what The Amazing Spider-Man tried to do. There are some gritty elements, especially in the first Amazing Spider-Man movie. It's dark. And the second one is very dark. So I want to like throw that out there. I don't think that movies have to be either one way or the other, like a dark, Mm -hmm. gritty movie or something that's happy-go-lucky. But you start to see in the second Amazing Spider-Man, they're trying to juggle way too many plot lines, which is what they failed at doing in the third movie. They're trying to juggle Electro. They're trying to juggle... Gwen Stacy, they're trying to juggle Harry and Norman Osborn. Paul Giamatti is the rhino, which I'm a huge Paul Giamatti stan. So I'm about all about that. I'm all about him being in the movie doing the fake Russian accent. Like I love Paul Giamatti. Billions. If you haven't watched Billions, give it a watch. That's my that's my sponsored recommendation for this show. It's that's on good. Showtime. 
It's my plug. Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti. Love Paul Giamatti. But they just tried to throw way too much into that movie. And it just falls apart as a result by the weight of what it's trying to do. And I think that had those movies been better and had Andrew Garfield been like the same quality of a Spider-Man that he is, that people would have looked a lot more favorably on him. Because I don't think Andrew Garfield is the problem in those movies. I think the problem is the story. I think the problem is the, the screenplay. I think the problem is the pacing. And the problem is just, there's so many other things that are the problems that aren't Andrew Garfield. I, I sympathize towards him. I think he was a great, okay, great's cutting it. I think he was a good Spider-Man and a good Peter Parker. He's also a great actor outside of these movies. I mean, some of his other stuff, 100%. he's like really big in the indie world. And what was that recent war movie that he was just in? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, da, da, I saw da, that. Da, I totally da, forgot the World War II soldier. Yeah. I can't remember it. Very good. He was also, he also, he, he was in the social network, which is one of my top three movies oh, yeah, of all right. time. He's got the, I mean, he's got the best, I, I, I'm joking about it it's the other day, actually, one of the best movie scenes in history is when they're talking with Justin Timberlake, mm-hmm. um, who's, who's playing what's his, the CEO of um, Napster, Sean Parker. They're talking mm-hmm. about like the worth of Facebook and the way that Andrew Garfield delivers the line when he says a billion dollars. It's like, I just gave myself chills saying that line. I just, I love, oh, I, I do love Andrew Garfield. Him and, him and Robert Pattinson have gotten the, the, oh, yeah. the bad end of the stick for a couple perceived bad performances when they're just great actors. Pattinson is in this new Netflix movie coming out very soon. He plays a down south gothic preacher uh, with Tom Holland, uh, oh, which I, leads I, us I, into I Tom Holland. It does. Good transition there. I think he's a great kid. Uh, he's also tied to the MCU Spider-Man universe. So I think the writing is a little bit different. What do you think about Tom Holland? I mean, as a Spider-Man, I think he's the best of the bunch. I think he okay. is a perfect embodiment of, of what Tobey Maguire did well as a Peter Parker and what Andrew Garfield did well as a Spider-Man. I think he's able to represent nerdiness in such a more modern sense than what we see it as, because mm-hmm. I think, I think the reference to him, like the, the 80s movies references about Empire Strikes Back are top notch in Civil War. I think that those movies suffer by not having him develop well as a character. So I think he is the best of the Spider-Men. He doesn't develop at all from Civil War to the end of Far From Home. And I think that that comes as a result of not having an Uncle Ben in the movie. And I know people joke about whenever there's a new Spider-Man movie coming out, people say, oh, I have to watch Uncle Ben get shot again. (laughs) I think you should have to see it because that gives the character his motivation. The only hint at Uncle Ben we see is the fact that Aunt May is a widow and that his bag in the movie Far From Home says Ben Parker Mm -hmm. on it. But otherwise, we don't have the motivation of becoming a better character, person, hero, cop, whatever you want to call Spider-Man. I was going to say, it feels like his motivation is not disappointing Tony Stark as opposed to honoring Uncle Ben. Yeah. And juxtapose those motivations. Like what with great power comes great responsibility because I'm living with the grief of everything that has happened compared to, I want to impress rich guy who gave me a nice suit. That's just terrible motivations. Just so the the listeners can hear it one more time. Who's your favorite and why? 
favorite Spider-Man is the spectacular Spider-Man <laughs> from the 1990s animated series. It gets a lot of hate due to its animation style. It does look a little bit weird. A lot of the characters look pretty rigid, kind of looking like Gears of War bodybuilders. But I think that is the perfect embodiment of the quirks and the heroics and the mission of Spider-Man that you're unable to get from a live action movie. All right. Well, that's it. That's our conversation on Spider-Man. Luke, tell us your Twitter handle. I think everyone should follow you on Twitter. How can we follow you? So my Twitter handle is at the letter G, Luke Perrin. Perrin is spelled P-E-R-R-I-N. I'm trying to change it to something a little bit more simple, but so far there's an account who's been suspended that has the name that I want. So I'm actually emailing Twitter back and forth about trying to get that account. Make sure you follow Luke on Twitter. He's got a lot of hot takes. I love him. Luke, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hope to talk to you soon. All right. Appreciate it, Rajiv. All right. Sounds good to me, bud.